Oh, shoot. I said that wrong. Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes Podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has a different need in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand and at the very least agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about the flexibility of services offered by cloud providers. My name is Brian Knutson, cloud technologist for iLand, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a heavy dose of Midwestern charm. So let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about being flexible in the cloud. Hi, my name is Eric Lee. I've been in IT for about 25 years now, started as an intern in high school and has worked my way up. I'm currently a lead architect working in cloud and virtualization for one of the largest medical IT companies in the United States right now. And we've got a global footprint. So quite a wide variety of things I've done over the years. Flexibility in the cloud is uh, very important to us where I'm at right now. We have multiple products that range in variety of tech stacks in sizes and stuff like that. So we really need the ability to be able to deploy at the lowest scale possible for that solution in order for us to drive costs down to make healthcare more cost-effective for our customers and in the end users, um, the people that, that the hospital serve. And I'm Jim Millard. I am currently a senior solution engineer for the mother of all virtualization companies, VMware itself. I've been doing this for a couple of years. Prior to that, I was a deployment engineer for a VAR based out of the Midwest. And prior to that, I lived in the customer space. So I've worn the hats all the way across from customer to cloud delivery mechanisms and all the way through the ultimate in let's be flexible, which is VMware. And I am very opinionated, although I am not always free to leave those opinions out in front of people based on where my role is. So this will be an interesting discussion depending on which hat I'm wearing for each comment. <laughs> Love those different hats. So flexibility is key to every business these days, but particularly in IT where things are constantly changing. Whether it's bringing up a Kubernetes cluster for critical application, being able to provide just the right resource fit in an employee's workstation, or working with the CFO to cut back costs during a financially strapped time, IT needs to be able to work with the business to provide what they need and when they need it. Which means the vendors and providers they rely on need to provide the right kind of flexibility. This has been a big part of the success of cloud-based technologies in the first place. Vendors and service providers have to pick a place on the spectrum that goes somewhere from Apple's rigid model of, we will provide the best of breed product and you will come to us, to the Dell desktop approach of ultimate customization and flexibility. Jim, from your perspective, how do different cloud provider types, and I'm thinking you know, hyperscalers versus the more VMware-based clouds versus customer built and owned private clouds, fit on the spectrum and how do they differentiate from one another? So I've come to agree with the VMware perspective that cloud is not a where, it's a how. And the more that we start to rely on using automation 
API calls, DevOps, and tooling to be able to consume wherever that workload is running back to the how part. That's where the ultimate flexibility comes in. The business side of it, where cloud really is aware still, is the bigger challenge because you'll have the buzzword of let's go to cloud without any parameters wrapped around it. And sometimes you're not able to be flexible because we have a, an executive saying that when he says cloud, he means it needs to be an AWS. That's not to say that AWS itself doesn't have so much flexibility that you can actually twist yourself in knots, but it does mean that that particular business might actually be better served by either continuing to use on-premises services, use a small cloud provider, or even one of the other hyperscalers because the AWS equivalent of the solution takes three different buckets of spend where the Azure might do one. So it's that flexibility challenge that has to translate what business wants when they're looking at the buzzword side versus what IT has to do to do it from the let's deliver the solution that's required side. Yeah, and Eric, you know, you guys do a lot of everything on that spectrum, I think. So have you run into situations where the business has potentially limited you into flexibility and as you investigate, you know, hey, should we do it on premises? Should we do it in AWS? Should we do it on a, a VMware cloud provider? I guess, what do you see in that space? That is a major challenge for us because at our scale and our diversity across tech stacks and products and solutions, there's always a better tech stack for this over that, a better cloud for this product over that product and what have you. And we really have to look at more holistically where we may pay a little more for this product, but we save 10 times more for this other product. So we're going to use it in that space. So it really goes not quite by a product by product specification. It kind of ties in those products and maybe what they talk to. So we have a few products that are cloud first. You know, they were developed in a cloud native pattern, ran on premises in OpenStack that we deployed and managed, and has since been migrated to the public cloud. But they don't rely on any restrictive requirements in connectivity to other systems. On the other hand, we have some products that are cloud native built, but they have network latency restrictions to connect to some others. So those are going to stay on an on-premises cloud where the other old monolithic products that they're connecting to are still talking with. We definitely see a wide variety that even in our development side, so we do some on-demand spin-ups of application stacks for automated testing, for teams to test their apps to connect to those and stuff. And we were originally spinning those up in the public cloud. And as we looked at the costing, it was way cheaper to do it on-premises. So we would go deploy a couple racks of gear versus what we were doing out there. And vice versa, we had some other container-based applications that we were doing on-premises and we weren't deploying near as much. And we had hardware just sitting there reserved to use for when they need it. And then that stuff was cheaper to deploy in AWS, especially for those short-lived things 
in that regard. So we're constantly evaluating and reevaluating those as they mature and grow and, and things change. And so the interesting thing about that with what you're trying to do, Eric, is the opposite of what I've seen some pundits say, which is trying to manage a whole bunch of different clouds so that you can recoup the benefits of flexibility itself is insanity. <laughs> the, the idea that pick one and stick with it seems short-sighted. And if you drink some of the VMware Kool-Aid, the idea is, no, pick the right tool for that particular solution. And we or our competitors or the ecosystem itself will find a way to help keep the sanity at manageable levels. Yeah. And let me step in here real quick on this, because when I talk about moving things around or this or that, we're not constantly moving around between different cloud providers for the same system all the time because, oh, this new service was released over here or they dropped their price by 3%. So we're going to move them over there. It's too hard to move stuff that quickly because we automate everything through multiple tool stacks. And though there are some stacks that have what I would call cloud agnostic workflows to kind of help with that, most of our tooling is custom built for our applications, the scripts and the processes. So in order to move that from one cloud to the other, there's a fair amount of process, monitoring, reporting, education that has to be done to do that. So that's easier said than done. I think if you're a smaller company with one product, maybe two products in total or so, maybe three depending on the size, you might be able to do that. But when you're talking about at scale where you have a SOC and a NOC and a virtual operations center and a cloud operations center and you're monitoring over 100,000 VMs and you know 500,000 containers and 70 tenants and everything else and multiple direct connects, you can't move that often and interconnect between all those. You have to have some balance of being specific enough in that cloud to take advantage of what that cloud provides with also having the ability to get out of that cloud if there's a reason you really need to move. So you're not bursting to the cloud every time an application spins up more workload than you can handle in one cloud? I thought that was the dream of the cloud. Not only are we not doing that, we are not bursting across multiple clouds to achieve that either. <laughs> so interestingly, do either of you see that as a possibility in the future? And we early on, we all saw the evolution of cloud from what the heck do you mean by cloud to what it is today. And I've been hearing a bit more chatter about the fact that, yeah, at this point, we can pretty much assume it'll never happen. Do you guys agree with that perspective? So the challenge that I see is the networking pieces. And it's being able to properly stitch together, not just the, I hate even to use the term public facing, because maybe the application you're delivering is for a private consumer tenant, to borrow the term that Eric used, but being able to stitch networks together properly across different clouds, or for that matter, even within a hyperscaler across multiple regions and data centers, that in itself is its own set of cloud challenges. But even more to the point is, I don't know enough about the future of programming to know if there's going to be sufficient abstraction. Containers are a great start. 
uh, because, you know, you're getting away from having to have the heavy weight of a full OS to deal with. You're more concerned with libraries availability. And ideally, as Kubernetes gets to be more of the lingua franca of managing and dealing with the lifecycle of containers, it's supported across multiple clouds, multiple regions, multiple, multiple, multiple. It still comes down to unless the applications are built with that intent for being ad hoc distributed and fully scalable for that burstiness, I don't know that that's where things are going to end up going. I know that you look at something like a, a Netflix or Google search itself or the shopping cart engine that's behind the scenes on Amazon. Those have been built from the get-go to be able to do that sort of thing. But again, you know, the scales are incredible. Even the largest scale that Eric is dealing with pales compared to what these global enterprises are doing. So that may ultimately be the difference between the usability of bursting versus the practicality of it. And I'll step in and say one thing on this is IT is a very wide variety in solutions and in usages and stuff like that, right? There's a lot of things out there. So are there going to be some use cases where, quote unquote, bursting to the cloud actually works? I'm going to answer that as a yes. If you are have seasonal workforce and you need some virtual desktops to run for a couple months over the summer, and all they need is connectivity to maybe Office 365 and a couple um, SaaS-based or restricted applications that you have running in the cloud, then you could use a cloud vendor and run some VDI in the cloud and not have to worry about anything, right? You don't need to, to get them anything if it's a BYOD environment or what have you. So I think there is some bursting like that, but I think as it entails to the non-hyperscaler type people that Jim was talking about, it's going to be extremely difficult until some challenges, networking specifically, are fixed. And that's one of the things that we're having a challenge with is how do you get the data between those or connected to those if you don't live somewhere or your business isn't somewhere within, you know, a physics distance of where that public cloud is going to be, or even smaller private, you know, public cloud is going to be. So there's physics involved that are very hard to overcome. And on top of that, then there's technology things on top of it, even if the physics weren't hard. Yep. Stupid speed of light. So I want to take this back to a more practical conversation around different clouds and how some different clouds operate. So Eric, the hyperscalers use this concept of instance sizing for their VMs, which you know locks customers into a limited number of VM size configurations. In your experience, is that a limitation in the, the flexibility that customers actually care about? I will say yes and no. Again, that word in IT, it depends. For us, it is, again, back to the wide variety of applications that we have, we like that flexibility to get the cheapest cost possible. When I started using AWS 10 years ago now, you know, you had small, medium, and large. That was your choices. And we were willing to pay for it because we could spin stuff up quickly and easily and and use it and run it and do it. So I think it really depends on your company and where you're at and what your needs are in order to achieve that. 
if you're looking at traditional companies that have been around for quite a while and they're trying to migrate from a an on-premises or a colo-based place into a a cloud provider, there definitely needs to be some choice because as Jim mentioned before, it's not a lift and shift going to most clouds. If you do that, it's going to be way more expensive overall. Even if you're saving data center costs and some other stuff, it's still more expensive to do it. There has to be something that benefits you for that price. And that ease of availability to do it is there, but it also has to be able to be right-sized a little more in order for you to stomach those costs once you get to a certain scale. So as with any IT decision, you know, there's gives and takes and, you know, you rarely do you have the ultimate perfect solution for a given problem that the business throws our way. You always have to make some level of compromise and knowing what you need out of whatever infrastructure you choose while also paying attention to the pieces or flexibility or features or whatever you may lose in the process is it's a calculated risk. It's a decision that has to be made with facts and figures. Yeah, for us, we're one of the largest Citrix customers in the world. So like if I change from a 2.8 gigahertz processor to a 3.0 gigahertz processor, that changes, and the core counts as well too, that changes how many sessions I can totally get on that box, which then changes my overall math. And when you're talking 6,000 physical boxes and 30,000 Citrix VMs, that little change can cost a fair amount of money. So we optimize as best we can, and we retest and retest and re-optimize in order to get the best cost. And if I don't have that flexibility in the public cloud, then our costs can dramatically go up. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I I would argue that that's a rarity, what you guys are doing there. (laughs) Because I think think back to er early on, you, as you were saying with AWS, you had t-shirt sizing, small, medium, large, and it wasn't just here's the size of the RAM footprint and you got all the CPU you needed or there was the disk space. It was everything was locked in. And when you went to the next size up because you needed one of the three main metrics scaled up, you got everything else along with it. And arguments were there that said that, well, I don't have to do that on premises in my vSphere environment, I can tune any of those the way I want to. And then I look forward to what I'm doing today and helping people look at what they're doing with vRealize operations to manage their environment. And by and large, they're running three or four different sizes of VMs, just like t-shirt sizing, that it's got two sockets and eight gig of RAM, or it's got four sockets and 12, or something along those lines. Yes, there is one or two that are handled as bespoke, we coddle this thing and we fine tune it and we watch all the metrics on it. But the majority of all your on-premises workloads would work just fine living inside one of the t-shirts as long as the costing was appropriate to what you were doing internally as well. And I think that's where it really comes down to that flexibility piece that, as Eric said, it comes down to cost. And when you're looking at the scale that they are, they're watching every nickel. Organizations that want to move to the cloud, even at a smaller scale, that they're looking at using it for DR, they're looking at branch data center evacuation, things like that. They are looking at every single penny. And it's not just the size of the workloads, 
there are cases where they did all the math, they got their discounting, they knew what their ROI was on the workloads, and they moved them up, and then they got tipped upside down on the network costs. That they didn't really have a good handle on what was actually running in their pipes to be able to put that information into the spreadsheets that would help them predict what their egress costs were going to be. And when I was at the bar, we had actual customers, jobs that I worked on to help bring people out of public cloud after they had a couple of surprise bills that were tracked down to being directly related to network costs. So there's a little bit of both that most organizations would be able to live with less flexibility of fine-tuning. Let's be fair. You don't see very many VMs out there that run three sockets, right? It's always twos. Two, four, eight. Yeah, you see an occasional six, but there are no fives. And it's not that we can't do it in the software. It's just nobody does it. Even though management tools might say five is exactly what you need. Four is too few. Six is too much. It just doesn't happen. So that translation should be fine. But when you've got somebody that went from static run rate based on their on-premises to running in the cloud where, yes, there is a big difference between paying for that six versus paying for the four, they want to be able to move that knob to five because that's actually the right fit. And it also depends on what's important to you with that application. So for instance, if you're running in GCP, if you have an application that has high network bandwidth, that is predicated on how many virtual CPU that instance has. So if you don't need a lot of compute, but you need bandwidth, you have to keep paying for additional cores on that instance in order to get that additional network bandwidth. The great thing about that cloud, though, is it's all software-based and their network's awesome. So if I get it, I get all of it all the time and I'm paying for it and that's what I get. So again, when you're validating what cloud you're looking at, you have to look at what's important to you and what the cost is. And then within your applications that you're going to run, what are the driving factors for those adjustments in those costs? Is it high storage volume or high IOPS for storage? Is it network? Is it CPU? Is it memory? And then you have to look at them at how am I best going to be able to take advantage of those providers, whoever they may be, for what I need to optimize and what I need to require for my application to work properly? Yeah, it's all a huge balancing act. I'm sure licensing costs play into that calculus as well. Yeah, and that's a huge challenge because those change often, especially with Microsoft, right? And Oracle and, and some of those others. So what you used to be able to do last year, you can't do this year or next year. And it's hard to predict those, you know, multi-years out. Yeah, definitely. We've talked a lot about Eric's large environment needs. Jim, I'm interested. I know the customers you work for tend to be quite a bit smaller than what Eric's dealing with. Are there any other items of flexibility that the businesses that you work with are really looking for that we haven't discussed? Uptime and reliability. And it's the kind of thing where at the scales that the hyperscalers have, yeah, they have some level of SLAs, but they really are relying on the customer to build an application to protect the data and things like that, as if those resources could go away at any moment. So you don't just live in one availability zone, you're in multiples and you build your application so that it can span and 
as Eric says, you do have to worry about light speed constraints. So maybe you're in a couple of data centers that are geographically close to each other, or you're relying on availability zones within one data center, but 99% of that is left to the consumer of the cloud to provide. And I think what smaller organizations, they're looking to cloud more because of a sense of managed services. When we think about, I'm not owning the hardware, I'm not dealing with the life cycle of the hypervisor, I'm not dealing with the life cycle of any of that because now it's a managed service. I think there's also some desire on those organizations' parts to have more reliability and availability and data protection further up the stack. And I know that larger public clouds and e- even the call them the in-betweeners, the, the large clouds that they don't work on credit card swipe, but they really do operate from a provisioning and, and operational standpoint like the hyperscalers, you know, IBM cloud comes to mind. They have the knobs to turn to say, okay, I want to turn on backups or I want to turn on some sort of availability without having to build it into my application. You're going to do that on the infrastructure side for me. And I'm not sure that enough selling is done to make sure that happens when people decide to shift workloads into the cloud. And it may be that some of the initial workloads that are going there don't need that. They are based on ephemeral workloads that if they disappear, that was the nature of the container. There's other ones that are spun up somewhere else and away we go because we're protecting our data locally or whatever the architecture of it is. But when we think about small businesses like 100 partner or 100 associate law firm that wants to stop having servers in the basement and run all of their business out of, quote unquote, the cloud, they're absolutely concerned about making sure that all of their work in progress and even archival material is protected and available in the same way that they would be doing that with on-premises. And I don't know that there's enough understanding that some of these cloud plays, it is still up to the consumer to make sure that happens. So getting that out in front and knowing that there's extra costs associated with that if you aren't aware of it, can change the economics of why you would go or not go in the first place. I wonder if that's something that needs to be a little better worked on in the smaller scope and scale for organizations that are looking at cloud and how flexible it can be. Yeah. I mean, being a VMware-based cloud platform island, we definitely try to provide that to customers that want to move into the cloud, but either don't have the skill sets or don't want to take the extra time it takes to reconsider some of those applications and how they need to be made available and and things like that. So it's that is a a real need. And some of our customers that have gone through that aren't small by any means. They're they're fairly large companies that do develop software. And they realize that sometimes a lift and shift for them is cheaper in some place that can provide the availability they're used to than having to retool what they're doing and you know, have to bake into their own software the availability aspect of it. So it's it's an interesting thought process that, that some customers need to go through for that. Yeah, the early days of Office 365, Microsoft never goes down. Well, except they did this week. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it's something you always have to be concerned about. We put a lot of trust in operations, the size and scale of the hyperscalers that things won't go down. And Murphy's Law says that at the worst time for it to go down is when it will. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Well, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. So the important things to keep in mind is, you know, the ultimate flexibility is kind of having an infrastructure that can be coded so that things can happen automatically. They can be triggered and there's very little time and effort needed to be put into it from a man hours perspective on individual workloads. And the business will sometimes limit that functionality. Sometimes they will specifically define a certain path that IT has to go down. And and that by its nature will reduce the flexibility that is available. And that flexibility sometimes is just being able to support multiple clouds. You know, IT needs to be flexible in the way they manage things and they need to be prepared for the business to potentially force them to go down different directions where they may want to pick one and stick with it. But IT should also take the responsibility of constantly helping to reevaluate the options and being willing to change those platforms when necessary. Don't get too stuck in a single platform because sometimes that flexibility does require changing, though it's rarely a simple effort. It's not something you're going to do on a regular basis. The balance of business needs, the technical requirements, the flexibility, the cost, and even the rules of physics all need to be considered in those decisions to make sure that when you migrate workloads out there, that you're getting the best of all those ingredients in there. And, you know, sometimes migrating a legacy infrastructure does require making some hard decisions that may not be simple and could cause the cloud journey to be very rough and painful to some businesses. And ultimately it comes down to, you know, the flexibility is great, but you need to make sure that you consider your responsibility for availability and connectivity in the cloud platforms that you're considering, making sure you understand fully what you're getting out of that platform and that you're not just blinded by the fact that, hey, they've got 5,000 different services we could potentially use. Let's go there and we'll make everything fit. So really great conversation. Thank you, Jim and Eric, for that conversation. Hopefully it was very useful to all of the listeners. I'd also like to thank Eileen for making this podcast possible. Please check out our episode notes, the panelist contact information, further information about this topic and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find our episodes on your favorite podcast apps. If you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing with friends and colleagues and rating us on those podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the CloudBytes podcast. You got away with me not saying anything about Go Chiefs.